0: Welcome to episode 14 of the Legends Podcast. I am one half of the Legends Podcast. My name is Sam Manheimer. And I'm Ari Levy. Uh, We got a really great show for you today. That's right. We are joined by my good friend from middle school, Davis Clute. And we'll be getting into that in just a few minutes. But before we get into anything, we want to first and foremost congratulate our good friend and fraternity brother, Brian Pluchuk, on his engagement to my former high school classmate, Jill Malozzi. This is
1: a this is a very long time coming. They are college sweethearts. It's the second person in our pledge class to get engaged, right? Well, you're a spring. Don't forget that. But second person our age to get engaged.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Jill and I actually go all the way back to the first grade. Shout out to Mrs. T. Catch. This one's been in the pipeline for a while. Very excited to see it come through. All right. So in other news, this week's been a bit of a freeze in Texas. Uh, and I know, Ari, that this weather has personally affected you, even though you're in Illinois. How does that happen?
1: Yeah, so uh, our third guest, Garrett Greller of Uncle Bud's Hemp, sent me a nice discount code. Thank you, Garrett, for for some products. I ordered a CBD balm and the Uncle Bud's Topical Hemp Pain Relief. And I was supposed to be getting it, but it was shipping out of Fort Worth and it's been stuck there for a pretty long time now. I think we're on 10 days. I did just check the tracking and it looks like it should be here by Wednesday, but it was uh, it was not moving for quite some time.
0: Who's had a worse week? You without the Uncle Bud's palm or Ted Cruz?
1: Uh, definitely me, because Ted Cruz is still a U.S. senator and he got to go
0: to Mexico. Listen, he doesn't give a fuck. Like, he's never given a fuck. He got bullied out of his vacation. He gave a fuck enough to cancel his trip.
1: Yeah, I know, but he still doesn't give a fuck.
0: Yeah, well, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on Ted Cruz. But anyway, hopefully everyone that we know in Texas is doing okay. Definitely had a pretty tough week. Don't want to make too much light of a shitty situation. Moving into today's episode, we have a very special and distinguished guest, my friend Davis Clute. We met each other in the sixth grade, went to middle school together. Davis went on to go to Stanford actually to play water polo and has since started a couple businesses Started one in college that I don't believe really panned out. And we do discuss that on the podcast uh, later on. But he did then also start another and much more successful business that he is continuing to run to this day. That business got him a spot on the 2021 Forbes 30 under 30 list. Quite impressive. Davis has a laundry list of books that he's read that are listed on his website, davisclute.com. One of the more well-read books individuals I know personally. And he generated a very informative book from his experiences with business as well as his reading. And I think he really synthesized a lot of really excellent points in the book. The book is titled How to Start a Business in 50 Pages. You can find it on Amazon for all of our listeners who are interested in buying it. Highly recommend checking it out. And Ari, you and I have both read that at this point.
1: Yeah, so I had never met Davis before this interview. And after our interview, we we were chit-chatting a lot off camera. And he's a very interesting guy. He's extremely bright. We were talking about different books, as well as just like different strategies and how he approaches business. And ultimately, like one of the things you'll hear him emphasize, and it's in his book too, is that starting a business doesn't need to be as daunting of a task as like it appears to be and he makes the book easy to read so i highly recommend you guys check that out and he also in his interview he he kind of just lays out you know his method of doing business and when you
0: think about it you're like maybe i've been overthinking it a little and he he's a real bright guy yeah so the entire point of his book was kind of the most simplistic and essential strategies of starting a business we were we were both able to read it in one sitting Yeah, I think that's really important to note too. And Davis talks on this in the podcast later on, but his point of view is that a book that you start and don't finish isn't a good product. His product that he put out is super digestible and it makes you think about a lot of topics that you might think are straightforward with a little bit of a different perspective. And it's very empowering. Makes you kind of see that maybe this isn't as complicated as you think it is. And I think it uh, really could enable a lot of people if you're interested in going down that path.
1: Yeah. And you know, I don't want to give up give away too much of the interview, but like one thing that, you know, Davis was telling me was that he idolizes Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett also has a very, very simplistic approach to like investing in like what he picks to investing in. And that's kind of like what Davis said he's modeled
0: a lot of his approach after. And they're both pretty successful. Yeah. And in the interest of modeling this podcast after Warren Buffett, we're gonna keep it simple. Without further ado, here's Davis Clute. We now welcome on a very special guest, a friend of mine from middle school, the first guest on the Legends podcast who is actually at my bar mitzvah, so he has a distinguished honor of that. And then also, he's a member of the Forbes 30 Under 30, he's Davis Klute, and he's a published author and a uh, CEO of a eight-figure business. Welcome to the show, Davis. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari and Sam, for having me. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. We've both read your book, and we learned that you work two hours a day. So we're glad that you could find time to to come on the program. But genuinely, we are very much looking forward to hearing from you and and learning about your journey and pathway.
2: Definitely, and my busy schedule. Yeah, I think it's just as important to figure out what the work not to be done is as the work to
0: be done. That's how I would frame it. That's a much more articulate way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know each other from middle school, haven't stayed in touch too, too much since then, but definitely been keeping track of your uh, trajectory, been connected on LinkedIn, definitely saw your posts and was very intrigued and saw you made 30 under 30. So you're uh, very distinguished, but also, I mean, you share a lot of very insightful tidbits on LinkedIn, which I think is a unique trait amongst people our age. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I think as a little bit of
2: background for me, for your listeners, I, my name, like I said, Davis, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a business called Hiccupop. We design, manufacture and sell baby products, actually. So literally bed rails, booster seats. We have some play yard mattresses that sell really well for us. We've kind of run the gamut and I really enjoy the business. I have a lot to say about it and other things I've tried. And I tried to start a business before that. It completely failed, but it was a good learning lesson. And I've been running it for close to five years now.
1: Davis, something I saw in your book was that you you have family that's been in the baby products business, which is what you're doing now. And you said I had an unfair advantage, but I milked that. For some of the listeners out there, kind of like what what did you do to put yourself in a position to be successful, given the knowledge of your parents and, and the contacts they may have had?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So my first business actually, I had no unfair advantage. I, I started that and it failed and it was, I was a sophomore in college. It was the first business I started. And you kind of need to start your first business and fail and just eat humble pie. That is just part of the process. You just got to do it. Every entrepreneur goes through it. That was the first business, but more so to your question, I think having started a business helped me a lot. The first time I had some humility and also just some awareness around actual business, like how, what profit is, that sounds stupid, but what unit economics are, things like that. And I just grew up around the the industry with my parents and so it gave and i loved product design as well so it gave me a good opportunity to pursue that and i think in terms of exploiting it was just or using it was just patience kind of taking things one step at a time and getting feedback from them talking to customers and just trial and error sheer volume of trial and error
0: So you had that background in your your prior business. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that was and then why it failed and what you took away from that?
2: Yeah, I still love the idea for the prior business, but it was sophomore year in college, a company called Zool, and I started it with a friend. And our idea was to give red solo cups, like plastic party cups that kids drink out of to give plastic party cups to fraternities, sororities, and student groups on campuses, you know, all around the U.S. And then we would give them free cups, literally no no strings attached, completely free cups and then what we would do is sell the side of those cups for physical advertising space for companies who are wanting to target this 18 to 22-year-old demographic. So we would sell a 2 by 4 square on the side of it and it would maybe look like a NASCAR cup you know, in its final (laughs) iteration. And it was a spread business. We paid For the cost of the cups, gave them away for free, but the revenue would be whatever companies are willing to pay for the physical advertising space. And and that would be the business model. That's the cost structure. The reason it failed, honestly, I just didn't know anything about business. Ideas aren't worth anything. If ideas were worth anything, then every idiot in a bar would be be a billionaire. Like it's the execution that matters 10,000 times more in the follow through. And I just didn't know much about business. I was impatient. I thought I knew a lot and I, I didn't know much. And it's hard to run a business like that. And after about a year, my friend and I, we got it was junior year. We got back to school and we just decided, dude, we've been pressing on this for a while. We've learned a lot. Let's just kind of wrap it up and move on. And, and actually, we did sell, we sold it, we had $1,000 of revenue for the business, we actually did sell a cycle of the product, we sold like five or 10,000 cups to a local app in Silicon Valley uh, that we sent to the University of Washington, their fraternity system. So for one week, in I don't even know what 2016 or 2015, University of Washington was just flooded with like these cups that, you know, for that were advertised for this app.
1: I think that's a pretty good idea. And like you said, businesses fail because of execution and you've obviously started a pretty successful company now and we're really excited to get into that. But let me ask you something. If you started Zool today and I don't know how well it would work with COVID, but let's just say COVID wasn't around. Do you think you could execute on it better and make it bigger than, than what it was? A lot better, yeah.
2: And my friend and I actually, my co-founder, we actually talked about it like senior year. We're like, dude, we should go back to this. We've figured out a lot of things late of how the business model should work. And I think I would do a lot better with it now. Who knows in entrepreneurship, but I think I would do a lot better with it. But at the time, I already had started to hiccup pop, and he was looking at jobs after college, so we decided not to. But it was a capital-efficient business. It's negative working capital, right? Like We would only pay our costs, being the cups, after we've already gotten the revenue from our customers. So that's, that's negative working capital. Your customers are paying for your costs before you pay for them. And I, I liked the business. It I, I totally liked it. And we figured out a lot of things late that we didn't know up front, but that's part of business as well. Things reveal themselves
1: to you over time. You can't rush that. Hey, you never know. You know, if you're only working one to two hours a day, you might have time to open another <laughs> business.
2: <laughs> yeah, coming to you soon. You know, plastic yeah. red solo cups.
0: Let me know. <laughs> So you started Zool your sophomore year, and then when did you start Hiccupop, and then what gave you the confidence to do that so soon after a prior venture?
2: Started Zool sophomore year. We did it for about a year, maybe a little bit over, my co-founder Kyle and I. And then after we shut that down, six months later, I started Hiccupop. As soon as we stopped Zool, I was like thinking, wow, I'm going to do 10 times better on the next thing I try. Like I just know so much more now. There was just so many things I screwed up that I had opinions on of how I should have done it better. So really I was looking forward to it. Some people will get beaten down by that. And I, and that's natural, but for whatever reason, I kind of knew it wasn't going to be my life's work. I was looking at it as the learning lesson that it was. I wasn't too, I kind of figured it would fail at some point. I wasn't unaware of that. And honestly, six months later, I just wanted to try it again. I just, like I said, I had a lot of opinions on things I should have done better.
0: What were the biggest carryovers from Zool to Hiccupop? And I I guess what were the lessons that you learned that you then applied? Because in your book, which is how to start a business in 50 pages, we should plug that. You mentioned that it was profitable pretty much right away. Hiccupop? Yeah, Hiccupop. Yeah, yeah.
2: It, It was also profitable in the sense that a small distinction it wasn't cash flow positive at first but we buy the product for ten dollars and sell it for 20 like i i knew i wanted a straightforward business model i wasn't going to try something of like oh maybe we would make money five years down the line if we get to like 10 million users i think that's that, that's stressful that isn't how i want to run my life to run my businesses mm-hmm. it, it's a good question as to the lessons probably patience that gets kind of beaten into you i think when you started a few businesses and it still gets beaten into me today you just learn patience you see things play out slowly and they take time to build. So probably that. And like I said, humility, just an awareness of people aren't going to be beating down your door the minute you release your business and understanding that things always take longer than you think. I think a lot of those lessons around patience and some self-awareness, I guess, as well.
1: Davis, a question I want to ask you is about co-founders. In your book, you say it's best not to work with family or friends when starting a business. It could be stressful and things don't always go the way it seems. And I definitely think you're right with that. But for a lot of people, you know, they storm business ideas with their family and friends. So how do you go about looking for a co-founder or another investor or someone you could partner with that you're not necessarily friends with?
2: What I was trying to convey in
1: the book as
2: well was just the opinion of just to douse a little bit of cold water on the whole thing, because some people get so overly excited about their co-founders. that I'm just thinking, like, you guys are going to be at each other's throats in six months. Like those sort of bright stars always burn out quickly, especially in co-founder relationships. So I was just trying to say that there should be a measure of patience, it happens organically. I've had people, I was talking a business idea recently with somebody and he was saying, he's a friend of mine, and he was saying, oh, you know, maybe you could give me some equity or something if I give good suggestions. And I just said, hey dude, let's take it step-by-step. Just let it play out, there's nothing to rush here same thing you don't want to rush a romantic relationship you don't want to rush a co-founder relationship and people often do but to your point of how do you find them i would just say start the business on your own and start doing start poking around on your own start learning about the problem if you want to sell doesn't matter if you wanted to be a therapist start asking people what do you do for this? Or an executive coach, you know, how do you think through this already? Are you solving it in different ways? How do you learn about this? Who do you talk to? And then naturally through that process, I think people self-select into what's going on. And I've seen that in a lot of different ways. There have been ideas I've had where I've been excited with somebody else, but in the back of my mind, I just think, okay, let's let it play out a few months. And then after a month they say, oh, maybe this isn't right for me. So I would just advise patients Start poking around on your own, but let it happen organically. That's my point.
0: So Ari and I are friends, so I, uh, I don't so feel like that know. bodes very well.
1: <laughs> just, just just wait just <laughs> wait until the cash starts flowing in from this, and we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, it doesn't get, to get touchy.
2: Exactly. And of course, it does work, right? Like the Airbnb guys are our friends, the three co-founders. And there's a million examples of it working. It's fine. It's just not my thing. It just hasn't worked for me. And I've hired friends. I hired a friend in Hiccup and I hired him once for a project and after a month I was like, oh, so this is why people say don't hire friends and family. Like you almost can't explain it to somebody. It almost just needs to like do it and then you can figure out if it's right for yourself or not. Maybe for you two it's right, maybe it's not, who knows.
1: We do disagree on things. But like we work through them. Also, we don't have cash flow yet, so there's nothing to fight over. But, <laughs> but we're, we're still building a product together. But I totally understand with what you're saying. Like Yeah, you understand you, where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, when you have a difference of opinion and you're friends and you're running a business together – things could get very testy.
2: Absolutely. And the other small thing I would say on that is I was just trying to push back against the narrative that entrepreneurship should be this crazy, stressful roller coaster where you're doing it with friends and you're like fighting in the day and then making up at night and having a beer. And that happens to some extent with any relationship, but you want smooth. You don't want emotional volatility in a business. It cripples the business. There's too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes. And So I was just trying to provide that perspective is you want to be smooth and boring. That's the most beautiful thing possible.
1: Smooth is slow and slow is. Oh, no. Wait, I got it. Slow is is smooth smooth and smooth is fast.
2: I think that's the best quote I could give anybody starting a business. That is a beautiful way to look at it.
1: Yeah, it is so right on and so many I, I'm not kidding. Like your business book, you, you it just put things into perspective. And I, and I read a lot too. And I read a lot of like books on how to be an entrepreneur, how to start a business, how this person did that. And like yours was just like, basically, to sum it up, you were like, just chill the fuck out. And like, you could do this. <laughs> and just like, be mindful of what's going on and, and, and go slow. I appreciate
2: it. And I tried to make it short as well for the consumer. Like so many books, people don't finish the book, but if, if people were buying shirts and never wore the shirt, we'd say it's a shitty product. Yeah. But people buy books all the time and don't finish the book. So to me, that's a shitty book. So I, I tried to make it as succinct and as to the point as possible. And yeah, I was trying to just make it low stress and trying to make it friendly. I definitely wrote it for somebody who's a complete beginner and to just say, hey, take it step by step. This isn't life or death. And if it is, you're already something's wrong. <laughs>
0: Well, you made the point a couple of times in the book, and then I think it's clear with Zool and then also kind of with Pop at least to a degree, you suggest starting small and working your way up. With uh, Zool, it was, a, as you said, a capital negative business, is that right? Yeah,
2: wor- working cap- yeah uh, negative working capital. Which negative means-
0: working capital.
2: Yeah, continue.
0: I majored in marketing, so that's, that's where <laughs> that comes from. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So I mean, you started small with Zool, though, and, and you weren't putting your life savings into it. And you made that point in the book a lot. I, I think that's really valuable advice. And, and we've talked to other people too who have started businesses, and they've kind of echoed that same sentiment where you got to kind of take some blows, but don't blow the bank on it. You, you got to learn from those mistakes without crippling yourself.
2: Totally. And I heard a really good example recently. My friend Chris turned me on to somebody named Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's very thoughtful about how to start businesses. And
0: he had a funny quarterback. I don't Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback. He did go to harvard
1: i had i just had to ask like i heard the name all right he probably he's a on quarterback but
2: it'd be impressive if he did both but uh <laughs> but but he had the example of say you wanted to write a, a cookbook for your ipad say you're really into cooking you want to write a cookbook in digital copy for an ipad doesn't matter one way to go about that is to write the cookbook on your ipad and then show it to somebody and say hey what do you think you've already invested the time but you say, hey. you what do you think about the prototype? That's one way to do it. It's not bad, but there's a better way. And his point was, instead, you should ask, hey, when was the last time you bought a cookbook? And then if they say, why would I ever buy a cookbook? All the all the stuff's online for free. That, that's a pretty massive, that's an important thing you should have known before you invest work in it. So my point is, there is a slower way to do it. You just want to be conservative with your resources and just take it step by step. Don't overcommit. I think that's a very important lesson for entrepreneurs is do not overcommit commit especially early on because things change so much it would be naive to think it was a straight shot it never is no business person in the world would tell you that
1: all right davis so you alluded to it earlier but you you really like product design and your company designs a variety of different products two questions kind of where where do you draw up the products and kind of like find the inspiration to make a product and also you talked about how you've done a lot of work in china And I know there's a lot of different manufacturers that people use throughout Asia, not just in China. But that idea of prototyping a product in Asia and then having it here is just like so foreign to so many people. So I guess in a two part question, where do you like kind of find your inspiration and how would you go about reaching out to a factory in Asia or even using one here? Yep. So as
2: to inspiration, it obviously varies a bit. Sometimes we could have more of an inspiration. There's products we've tried that were just pure inspiration. And there's others where there was already an existing product. And we'd say, okay, we could do this better. And I'd say a lot of our products end up in the middle or slightly towards the, there's already an existing product that we just think there's some issues with. And if the product is already good, if they're doing a great job with it, there's no, there's no market for us to enter. So it's a moot point. So you can't really rip off products because if it's a true rip off, nobody will buy it. Customers are very smart. So I think it's often just looking at products that are already on the market. And if something has good sales, but has really bad reviews or just has a number of issues with it, then you can just kind of make a better mousetrap or redesign it in some way. So it's really, it's oftentimes getting inspiration from what's already out there. That's really where anything needs to start. Nothing is ever like truly out of pure inspiration. It it that, it never is.
1: It's it's hard to invent something that, that doesn't exist. It's possible, but it is hard. Totally. And in a lot of
2: ways, you don't want to. Only in the sense of that, if you're unaware of what the market offers, that's naivete in the worst possible way. I had somebody wanted to show me a product design one time. It was a fitness product. It's It's hard to explain what it was. But he was showing it to me, and I asked him, I said, hey, is is anybody doing something similar? He said, no, this is totally unique. I invented it myself, et cetera. And I look on Amazon. I didn't show the guy, but I look on Amazon. There was 100 products literally exactly like it. I think what he did, though, he I have no doubt he invented it independently, but I think he just didn't want to put his feet to the fire and look up what customers were doing to solve this problem already because they're solving it in some way, even if it's not great. And anyways, he, he invented it independently, but the exact product had already been selling for years. So that sucks. And to the point of suppliers, oftentimes we found suppliers in a myriad of different ways. Now that I go to China, it's a lot easier now that I'm in that world. But I would say just go on Alibaba and start looking for suppliers of what you do or who do similar products and then get samples, like try to talk to them and get samples. And in the most ideal way, don't place a big order first, place a small order to make sure they're trustworthy. Or if you are wanting to place a larger order, you got to go over and meet them. That will solve so many issues long term. It takes time and it takes extra money. But if you're serious about it, and it's an amazing journey, not many people go to China. But that's my best advice. Go on Alibaba, talk to multiple people, find five factories in the same city, fly over there and meet them all.
0: I remember in middle school, you were taking Mandarin when everyone else was taking Spanish and French. Did you know back then that that would have helped you out as an adult? Like, do you speak fluent Mandarin at this point?
2: No, I don't. I,
0: I speak English there. People
2: on the east coast of China on the on the seaboard, on the ocean, they'll typically it's very international. So mm-hmm. so yeah. I guess I was interested in the subject early on, but it hasn't helped me practically in any way, other than being like a funny story.
0: I was hoping it was gonna be some like 3D chess where you knew you were gonna do this when you were like fourteen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I wish there none of that. And I've actually heard of people I know a few white people who speak Mandarin, and they'll sometimes go into meetings and not tell anybody that they speak Mandarin. And I've heard of people doing that, is they'll hire people, depending on the situation, but they'll hire somebody to come into the meeting who pretends to not speak Mandarin, and they do, just so that they can see what's being said, and vice versa. I know Mm -hmm. I've been with suppliers that somebody, they may say somebody doesn't speak English, but I know they do. That's just the game of chess and like, wow, that's wild, wild west capitalism.
0: So when you were first going to market with Hiccupop, what was your product and how did you go about designing it? Did you did you go to China to get that one developed first? And then what was your go to market strategy once you had it ready to go? Yeah, it was a foam bed bumper. It looks it's in lieu of a metal bed
2: rail, but it's a it's a bed rail. It's a bed bumper instead of a bed rail. It solves the same purpose. And it looks like a speed bump, and you place it on the side of a bed underneath covers, underneath the sheets of the bed. And I, I could also talk about how we came to that product. It was kind of what I just talked about. If somebody else was doing a similar thing, but they weren't doing a very good job. We thought we could do it a lot better. In terms of the design, I actually don't remember if I went to China for that. We may have just been over here in the U.S. sending samples back and forth. So I don't actually remember. But we just went through prototypes. We had some ideas about how to make it better and just went through some prototypes back and forth with the factory. It sucked, actually. The first version completely sucked. It was really a crappy product. But that's that was my impatience, I think. And that's part of the process. But I think we're on version 6 or 7 now.
0: And then when you went to market, what was your platform? Did you initially go to Amazon? Were you on your own website? I guess, how did you get that out to consumers?
2: That's a really good question, because that's often the long pull for most businesses, is just marketing their product. We were selling on Amazon, and really, one of my co-founders, he had sold on Amazon a bit before. It's a long story how I met him, but he had sold on Amazon before. And he was really the key to cutting that learning curve into one one thousandth of what it would have been. And so he had experience launching products on Amazon. He didn't design products as much, but he had experience selling on Amazon and he's a smart dude. So, so that's how it happened. He helped a ton on that front. And that was actually a humbling thing that I learned recently was when I launched my book, I was like, oh, I can do what he does. I'll just launch the book and, and it'll be a success and blah, blah, blah. But I have realized five years later how important he was to the business. I I didn't really appreciate it at the time. It was hard for me to do it because I've never tried it myself, you know, without him involved heavily. And so anyways, that was he helped launch it. And that was, like I said,
1: something humbling I realized recently. So
2: maybe co-founders are good. Maybe uh, maybe after all, maybe they're useful.
1: Uh, Davis, one, one thing I, I saw was that you said you you listen to your customers, especially with reviews. So has there been a time where you put a product out and you thought everything was good and you listen to some reviews and some customer feedback and you're like, I got to change it up? And, and how did you do that? Definitely.
2: We do running changes all the time. On our bed bumper, the first product we came out with, we're on probably version seven or something. And I actually went to China before COVID, but I went to China and I slept with bed rails in my bed in the hotel room every single night for two weeks, just to really feel how sticky it was and how good, how firmly it stayed. And I did that for, we went through 15 prototype versions probably in two weeks. I think we came out with something. I really liked the final version of it. So that's re- that's the best possible thing you could do is just cycle through prototypes. And uh, in a, taking your question in a slightly different way, a good example is we had, it was a booster. See, I spent a lot of time on it and I have a lot to say about it. And we actually got involved in patent litigation around it. But somebody was already selling a similar product. She wasn't the first one by any means. It's been around for that concept has been around forever, but she was selling an inflatable booster seat. And we looked at it and we said, okay, there's a number of things wrong with this. Customers liked it, but they didn't love it. And I just thought we could, we totally redesigned it. And she got really mad when we came out with our version. She said, "Oh, you copied our, des- you copied my design, and you're stealing my product." Blah blah blah. As if, again, she didn't do that to somebody else. But to me, that's hilarious. I'm just thinking, like, look, if you had just listened to your customers and made a great product, I wouldn't have been here. Davis Clute would have, would have not existed in your life if you had just listened to your customers and iterated it through your products. But you didn't, which is why I'm here. Because if you make a great product. There's no market for anybody to enter. There's no hole in the market. Nobody is going to want to compete with you if you are constantly listening to your customers and improving it over time. You'd you'd be impossible to dethrone. But she didn't. And that's how capitalism works.
0: So you said you got involved with some uh, litigation there. How'd that go for you guys and, and what came of that?
2: So it's actually maybe in a way you wouldn't think. So she had two patents, a utility patent and a design patent. Utility patent is much more worthwhile. That's what people typically talk about when they talk about patents. Design patents are almost meaningless. It's like ornamental design. And we knew that she had patents before we started designing the product. But our design really averted her patents anyways. Like when you get a patent, it's not on the general concept of an inflatable booster seat. It's on a specific application. Like an inflatable booster seat with LED lights around it with a gyroscope in the middle of it and hardened foamed beneath it. Like that's what you get a patent for is a very specific design. Anyways, we went to a lawyer before we came out with it. We knew that she would allege patent infringement as soon as we came out with it. That's the oldest play in the book. And we had dealt with that with other people on Amazon. So we said, we we know how this is going to play out. Let's just make it easier on ourselves. We went to an attorney and said, hey, can you write up a statement of due diligence? Like do research and certify that our product is not infringing on these two patents. Before time, it's like, it's just a statement of due diligence. It's saying that, hey, we recognize this before time. So don't try to mess with us. Don't try any BS. We sent it to her the day we released the product. We said, hey, we just released this product. Here's a statement of non-infringement by a patent attorney we paid. So don't go to Amazon and cry wolf. Don't say that there's patent infringement because there isn't. And you've been warned also, like in writing, you've been warned. Of course, she then goes and tells Amazon that there's patent infringement and our product gets banned for probably a month because amazon will kind of ban you first and then figure out if you're guilty later which makes sense i i, I don't care but anyways we then ended up suing her for what they call interference and in prospective business advantage like for example you couldn't go to my employer and tell him i'm a racist or tell him that i like abuse my my dogs or something or that i am a bad person in some way that i stole something recently if i didn't that is interfering in my business advantage in the business relationship with them. So I can sue you for the damages, whether it's lost wages, lost sales, reputational harm, whatever. So we actually sued her for interference and prospective business advantage as it relates to our relationship with Amazon. And I think it's settled. She settled for like 15 or 20 grand. Her insurance company, of course, not her business. That isn't how liability insurance works. And now we just got, we finally got it to the point that it should have been originally. Let's just put our products on the table side by side and let the customer decide. No litigation, no BS. Let's just let the consumer decide and let them vote with their dollars. So it ultimately, we just spend six months running around for no reason just to get to where we should have been.
1: So one thing you talk about in your book is the emotional aspects of starting a business and I'm sure having your product banned from Amazon, not being able to generate sales is stressful. And just your day to day of having to run a company is stressful. What do you do to to keep yourself relaxed and just like focused on your vision?
2: I have a calm demeanor in general which I think helps. I don't think I get too high or too low and I just don't look at it. I also don't view business as the entirety of my life like some which might sound weird cuz I wrote a book about it and I read about it constantly. I don't really view it as like the whole sum of my personality so I think there's a little bit of distance there. I just I like business, it's a massive part of my life, but it's not I don't live or die by how well it's doing. So I think it's also just have, and also just a perspective that things play out over a long period of time. It no nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems in the moment, right? So if a business is struggling, that's never as bad as it seems, and if a business is succeeding, it's never as good as it seems long term. So I guess it's just kind of a perspective that
0: things play out slowly, et cetera. Also in your book, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, you you note that you work an estimated two hours a day, <laughs> which I think would, would shock a lot of people who kind of view being an entrepreneur as just this pedal to the metal, grind around the clock kind of endeavor. How do you spend that time? And I guess, is it developing new products? I guess, how much does the business run itself? and How much are you investing in it now as a, in a time investment? And then what are you doing with your other 22 hours? So, yeah, and it's also, yeah, nobody's ever
2: accused to pop of overexpanding. I think we're like very. We'll say no to a lot of stuff. We don't sell in any other countries. We don't sell on any other retailers or websites, et cetera. Most of that time is operational things. Really, inventory management is really. That's one of the most critical things that I do personally within the business. A lot of inventory management, demand forecasting, managing cash, cash flow, things like that. That's really critical and. Product design, we haven't come out with anything recently throughout COVID, but before COVID, a lot of the product design gets done in China. That's really where the ball gets moved. And we would do a lot of it as well here in the US. But really the needle mover is going over to China as frequently as possible. So that's where my time, the two hours a day here is less product design, a lot of operational stuff and whatever comes up, stuff comes up all the time, right? But before, especially going to China a lot was really critical to new products and anything that's undergoing changes. That's really where all of the progress gets done.
0: So when you're over there, you're going through iterations of products, V1, V2, V3, and obviously you're there so you can kind of see that turnaround quicker than if you're waiting for something to ship. Is that kind of the gist of why you go? That's exactly
2: it. Is Literally, we could do a prototype a day, whereas if you were here in an office in China, if you're not making the prototypes yourself, which we, we some businesses do that, but that's larger, more built-out businesses, you would do one prototype a month. And it's just a Sisyphean way to like design a product. It's like inflicted, it's masochistic. And so really, when I go to China, I don't even work that much in China. It's probably similar a few hours a day. But because it's so a fantastic example, there's a small anecdote here. A fantastic example is we were designing a booster seat and... Two parts of it didn't fit very well together, but it was hard to change. It wasn't like you just sew it differently. Like this came out of tooling. This was plastic parts. We went back and forth for six months on how these two parts didn't fit together. And the supplier didn't want to change it because it was hard to do. It was expensive to do and time consuming. I then fly over to Shanghai and I tell Charles, who is the guy at the factory, I said, Charles, bring the booster seat when you first take me out to lunch. Like when I first land and pick me up, bring the booster seat. We go out to lunch, and I said, and we continue arguing about this, about we want to change it, and he doesn't. I then ask a waiter at the restaurant, I said, hey, can, you know, through translator, I said, hey, can you put this product together and install it on a chair? Because it's meant to go, it's a high chair for kids, a booster seat on top of chairs. He puts it together. And of course, these two parts don't fit together, which I already knew. But Charles was being hard headed. And then Charles looked at that and he goes, oh, my God, I finally see what the issue is. Just because you can't convey that over text and video chat, you need to be there physically with them. It's a physical product. So. Literally, I could have turned a 30 minute lunch in, in Shanghai was worth easily the money that I paid to fly there. My time, everything it, 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 we could have the six months prior could have been solved if I had just done that, you know, initially. So that's a good example of some of those problems. They get solved so quickly and that's how leveraged your
1: time is there. More recently, like, you know, with COVID and everything, we've all been, like, living in a time where we're doing everything via Zoom and phone call. And, like, we, like, a lot of us have just forgotten, like, especially, like, working with a team in person and just, like, how quickly things could get resolved when, like, you can see each other and see things for yourself.
2: Totally. And sometimes you, you got to realize you're not doing hard work just for the sake of doing hard work. Like, work is a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. And I think oftentimes reflection and kind of thought will get you a lot further than hard work. You have to have them in equal amounts, but I'm always skeptical of somebody that just prides themselves on hard work. Cause to me, that's synonymous with just banging your head against the wall and hoping something pops out. So I think a nimbleness and ability to change and adapt and to think through it, I think that
1: can save a lot of man hours. And, And what it sounds like is that you're very efficient you have a business model where, like you said, you buy something for $10, you sell it for $20. you are not looking to like overcomplicate things. And you're like, if I could do the amount of work needed to get everything done today in two to three hours, I'm not going to work for 12 hours. Totally.
2: And I, I would like to think I'm efficient and kind of thoughtful and self-reflective about the whole thing. But as well, I don't think I'm greedy either. I think... We've had opportunities of people asking, could we distribute your product and a like, distributor in Israel? That was an example I used in my book. Sometimes you just got to say no to things and not grab every last penny off the ground. I think, that, I think that leads to more money in the long term, even if it may not look like it in the immediate future in the short term. But like I said, I, also, I don't think I'm greedy by any means in all of the ways that that means.
0: Yeah, knowing when to say no is a is a really important skill to have. And I think, I mean, I, I, as a person who works a nine to five, you don't really get that opportunity because you kind of just got to yeah. do what you're asked to do. But it definitely as a business owner, like that experience of of what to deny is probably every bit as important as what it what it is that you you ultimately dive into.
2: It's really critical for an entrepreneur because you end up maybe not initially, but further down the line, you'll have a lot of opportunities and people just. It's like the shiny object, like being able to avoid the shiny object, I think, is really critical and just not be moved from your priorities. And yeah, it's agreed on the nine to five. You may not have that option. It's crazy to me sometimes what people do with their employees. We have 14 or 15 employees in the business. And with our customer service people, they work remotely. And that's one of the most important jobs in our business is customer service. And I'll just tell them, I'll say, hey, here's what I'm looking for, right? Like it needs to be a high quality response. They need to be gushing over how nice and overly generous the response is. And it needs to be within four hours. And if you hit that, you can do whatever you want. You can reply to 100 tickets in three hours and 59 minutes. I don't care. But I think as long as you parameterize the problem correctly, that's often on the man. Oftentimes when employees are suffering, that's because the manager isn't thinking through the role correctly, or they're just giving them work to remain busy just because they think that's what work should be done like, is that it's just a constant push. And sometimes there's more work to be done, but sometimes there isn't work to be done and you can't force feed it.
0: So let's actually pivot a little bit to your role as as the manager of people. So you're 26 years old. So not the oldest person in the room. What, yeah. I guess, have you embodied as a manager to establish yourself with your employees, who I'm assuming have probably been in business maybe longer than you have? Um, and, and how do you motivate them?
2: I've probably hired and fired 15 people by now, like kind of gone through that process. And i have fired, I've probably fired five or so people by now. And it kind of sucks, but it's part of business. I, It is what it is. I think in terms of that I think I'm very hands-off and hands-off, but also like very micromanaging in other ways. If something isn't getting done correctly, I won't have much tolerance and I'll kind of say, hey, you need to fix this. And if it isn't fixed, we'll let you go. Or I'll, I'll, I'll let them go after I've given them what I think is ample time. But I also just kind of, I think I just kind of parameterize it well with them. Just say, hey, here's the output that I want. And in terms of respect, I don't know. It's a nuanced thing. I don't get on power trips. Some people definitely do that i don't have a great answer for you i guess it. i don't know trial and error
0: no I, I think what you noted though about how you try to parameterize your your business i mean it's establishing a program and kind of just putting people in a lane with bumpers and they can't really get outside of that and then that way you can get people, them to putting people
1: in a in lane with uh bad bumpers
0: <laughs>
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: exactly um,
2: and just being willing to adjust People will also vote with their feet. If you treat people poorly, I want continuity in the people in my business. It's, I have a very selfish incentive to treat employees well. I want them to be around for a while. So that, but, and that's purely out of my own self interest. It isn't like a moral or philosophical consideration, although it partly is separately. But, anyways, I also don't view it as family or, or as my friends, the people that I work with. I just view it as, hey, we're, Neutral co-workers and I just want it to be as low emotion as possible both good emotion and bad emotion. Like I just kind of want it to be like a very efficient workplace where you're treated. It fits into your life well, you get paid well, you treat customers well and that's,
1: and it's very matter of fact. Davis, I have a question for you, and, and this one might, like, pull at the heartstrings a little, so I want you to just, like, take a minute to think about it. Was Sam a cool kid in middle school? <laughs> I'm sure there's a the right answer to this. I yes. mean, I've seen photos of the kid in middle school. I mean, I, I don't know. He, he crushed it in middle school. I'll uh, I'll take your
0: word for it. If we're we're on the topic of middle school, real quick, I did have a question, Davis. What are you more proud of, being on the Forbes 30 under 30 list or going undefeated in seventh grade flag football?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. I I think we were a pretty good flag football team. We were an athletic group, I guess, Andrew Smith notwithstanding. (laughs) (laughs) I I had
0: a couple D1 athletes. Myself yeah, not included exactly. either. <laughs> I
2: get, yeah, I ended up playing water polo, but I guess it's I don't know, somewhat similar. The 30 <laughs> under, in seriousness, though, the 30 under 30 thing was cool. It was a bit of a surprise in a way, and that that was totally cool. Uh, that's I've gotten like a million miles. You know, I've gotten a ton of usage out of that already in two weeks or
1: a month or however long it's been. You you mentioned it a lot in your book. You're you're very passionate about teaching and teaching others. You know how to start a business, the right you know financial literacy, right business moves. Do you want to elaborate a little on like what what you're trying to do and what your mission is in terms of teaching?
2: Yeah, and I could say just a couple of things that I'm looking forward to long term as well. I right, now, it's hard to really prognosticate past, you know past a few months, but I want to build a business out of teaching. I love I love teaching. I love entrepreneurship. And I don't want those to be separate parts of my life. And so I wanna I want to make money off of teaching. And in fact, I want to make a lot of money off of teaching. And I think really the limit to that is your own creativity. I think the capital there's people who love learning, and that's who I would be selling to, is the people who learn for fun. Not everybody would be my customer, not everybody it would work for them, but there's definitely a contingent that I think I would tap into of They enjoy a similar levity and funness from from learning. So building products around that. I don't know what that means. The book was the second product I tried actually. The first product, I tried some YouTube videos around kind of financial concepts. And I released those and I got a decent amount of feedback. I got some good feedback and I got a decent amount of views on a couple of them. But I realized it would be a long uphill battle to build a YouTube channel and I wanted to make money quickly and like pretty directly. So I, I killed that off relatively quickly. That was the first thing I tried in this teaching business. Second thing is the book, and I have a couple more ideas that I'm prototyping now. And we'll see from that. It'll be fun, and I'm, I'm not too worried if it doesn't happen anytime soon. I think it'll play out over multiple years, hopefully over multiple decades. Like I think this will be something that I'm passionate. That it could be my really my life's work career wise, like professionally, could be really my everything. Like more like everything to me. And and like I said, that'll take multiple years,
0: decades, et cetera, to play out. So you read quite a bit. You have a website, DavisClue.com, where you list off all of the books that you've you've read over the last couple of years. And it's an extensive list and honestly I read a lot. A very interesting array of books on economics by Warren Buffett, and you note at one point that you think that you've listened and read more Warren Buffett than anybody else. Is that who you draw most of your inspiration from, or are there other other books or authors out there that you really identify with and model yourself after? And
2: believe it or not, I stand by that. I, I, I don't walk that back for a 26 year old. I just couldn't imagine anybody else's listened and read more than it. Like I, I drove Warren I Buffett. On, more Warren Buffett. Exactly. I, I was on a vacation. I drove down to LA to visit some friends one time and I drove, drove up, up North to Eureka one time. I went for just a weekend just to check it out. And I, li- I literally listened to like a shareholder meeting. They're six hours long. I literally just listened to it start to finish as I was driving. And I, I've done that multiple times. So anyways, I, I stand by that. Warren Buffett, the dude is masterful. There's a reason. He, he is, he's masterful also because he makes it look so effortless. It is just amazing. Like, he is the best bur- business person, bar none. Like, unequivocally, other people are good entrepreneurs. Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk. But business wise of just classic cash flow, old school business, the dude is he is a grandmaster unlike anybody else. It is amazing. And so anyways, I draw a lot of inspiration from him. Jeff Bezos as well. I listen to a lot. I've listened to probably every single Jeff Bezos interview on YouTube and listened to it multiple times. And it is effortless what what these guys do. And they never have problems. They don't you don't hear an issue with Warren Buffett. You you do not hear him in the tabloids or whatever. I admire that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the thing about Warren Buffett too, is that is someone that I try to learn from as well. He, he, you know, we're talking about a billionaire investor who invests in, in stocks, which to a lot of people is just something that's super foreign when it doesn't have to be, but he just takes things and he just, he just has a very, very simple business model and how he chooses to invest. And it's just like paid off. And it's really incredible. But, I mean, he's got Dave Portnoy calling him old and washed up now. And I just want to know how, how you feel about that.
2: Uh, I don't think Warren <laughs> Buffett cares too much about anybody calling him old and washed up. And it, it was amazing. One time at one of his shareholder meetings, he invited a short seller to come. And a short seller is somebody who bets against the stock. And because going long a stock means you're betting for it, you're buying the stock. Going short the stock means you're betting against it. And he invited a short seller and said, "Hey, talk to my shareholders. Try to convince them to to sell the stock." And the guy was the guy was giving his case and saying, "Oh, there's a conglomerate discount, et cetera, et cetera." And then at one point during the shareholder meeting, right before the shareholder, right before the short seller was going to speak again. Warren, uh, somebody else said, oh, they were releasing some earnings for the past quarter and unaudited. And they said, oh, earnings are up 57%. It, it was like the best quarter they've ever had. And I'm just like, oh my God, this guy is this guy's a wizard. Like he's also very, cla- I could talk about him forever. He's very classic old school investing. And the best sign of a business person is somebody who's been through multiple cycles. Somebody who has somebody who's been through multiple cycles and is always the most steadfast. When oh eight happened, everybody turned to Warren Buffett for investment. Yeah. That's when you know you're a badass. Is when, when everything hits the fan, it's you and the federal government are looked at as the safest entities. So I think he's the best education a young business person could get in just classic old school business.
1: Yeah. Classical. And in 2008, when all, all the investment banks, uh, especially um, Lehman Brothers, they asked him to buy them out. And he had a very simple rule about investing was if he had he, he would, you know, he would look at whatever documents they gave him and he would write stuff down. And if he had too many questions or like, what is this? He just didn't invest if, if it didn't make enough sense to him. He's good at staying
2: in a circle. I admire that too. He has a lot of self-discipline. And I think that's what allows you to stay through multiple cycles and have staying power, self-discipline. And there was somebody else, my friend who's also a big Warren Buffett fan was joking. Somebody else was calling him washed up or didn't get the new economy or, or I don't know, whatever the headline was. And it was right before COVID. And then when COVID hit, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway was sitting on $130 billion in cash. There is no business on earth that has that level of liquidity. And like TARP in 08 was was $800 billion. It was a federal program and and he has $130 billion. So, So as soon as COVID hit, he just like took the world for a final last ride. I'm sure as soon as prices crashed, I bet he was salivating at the opportunities with that much cash on hand and somebody. That's the best sign to me of a good investor and business person is somebody who has a lot of cash at all times and who, again, it's self-discipline.
0: The other thing about Warren Buffett that has always struck me, and I'm not I'm not a massive investor, but to me, his Christmas photo every year just is as much as you need to know about him. Because it's like 25 people and it's the same 25 people every year. Virtual Hathaway That's has funny, obviously yeah. all these businesses. And I mean, they, they obviously have oversight and they, they've invested, but it's not a big operation that he's running. Like it's a very manageable group that he has. And I, I feel like that is also a very uh, indicative sign of, of how efficient he is internally. Agreed. I think he's a fantastic role
2: model. And as a final point, it's slightly more technical if you guys put this into the podcast. Berkshire Hathaway trades at around a six price to earnings multiple, which all that means is if it earns a dollar in profit, the business, if it earns a dollar in profit in a year, you could buy the stock for $6. So you're buying $1 a year income stream for $6. And the reciprocal of that would be your yield. One over six is, I don't know, 14% or something. I don't know, whatever it is, 15%. That's your yield. But anyways, Berkshire Hathaway trades at a six price to earnings multiple and he's worth $80 billion. Jeff Bezos, Amazon probably trades at a hundred price to earnings multiple or or 80 and he's worth $200 billion. So he's maybe twice as rich. If Berkshire Hathaway traded at anything near a normal price to earnings multiple, he would literally be the richest person in the world four times over. He, he would be like a trillionaire if it was valued at the same multiple of an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos. But the reason he isn't. So in a way he's the richest person on earth by far, but he talks down the stock when it gets too high. Like that's how old school he is, is he doesn't think businesses should be valued that high. So but the guy would never lose that wealth. He's worth $80 billion, but it'll never go below that. Whereas Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, I think they have much more volatile net worths. So however you want to look at it, really, if, if if we're comparing apples to apples, Warren Buffett is literally twice as rich as Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos.
1: But and easily. And extremely humble i believe he lives in the same house he grew up in or the first house he ever bought something like exactly. that exact exactly he has a lot of humility and self-awareness and
2: i think he's a great north star for young business people I, there's other people who are kind of sexier maybe flighty uh, not flightier but like more in the moment successful like i'm sure there's some i'm sure there's a million examples now but old school, somebody who's been over multiple cycles and clearly has proven themselves. That's, I think, a good North Star to index on long term for somebody young. That The fundamentals never go out of style,
0: I guess is my point. And is that generally what you try to teach, too, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Just I just try to give kids as
2: there's some things, maybe co-founders I'll, that's more controversial, but generally in my classes, I'll try to keep it as old school as possible. Like the best criticism I could get from somebody is that it's old school or that it's, oh, this this is too old school or it's not how business works nowadays or whatever. That I just want to give kids classic fundamental boring advice that kind of gets overlooked. And that's in just, new. I think of that as neutral advice. Nobody would object to it and say it's wrong. They might say it's boring or it's not as sexy, but that's the kind of thing that I would like to hammer home with kids.
0: And you do do some teaching. Can you explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I do a lot. I, I taught an econ 101 class to a middle school a year or two ago. With Young kids is a different thing. It's a different beast. But I did an econ 101 class for middle schoolers. I do a business, uh, a business club at my old high school, De La Salle. I've done it for two years now. I've taught some guest classes at St. Mary's, a local, like a MBA program locally. And at a junior college, Diablo Valley College, I've taught some classes there. And I'll, I'll do other stuff kind of randomly, but I've I've taught a decent amount at this point and I love it. It's fun and I think hopefully the kids really like it.
0: That's awesome. I didn't know you were teaching in that many spots.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've definitely taught a lot. And, and like I said, I made some YouTube videos I made some YouTube videos as an attempt at a first product for this new teaching business. And I I think that's in the same vein, trying to just make it like as direct to the point, but very friendly. Like I would write it for a smart high schooler, like somebody who doesn't know anything about finance, I would expect them to understand what a balance sheet is after watching this video. And one of the videos was explaining what a balance sheet is in the context of Lehman Brothers, this Matt we talked about earlier, but this massive shadow bank, it's an investment bank, but it's also a shadow bank this massive shadow bank that collapsed in 08. So that was one video I made in that vein of teaching.
0: How did you get connected with uh, DVC and St. Mary's
2: and whatnot? I cold called DVC. I literally just cold emailed a business professor there and said, hey, I really like to teach. Here's my credentials. Is there any opportunity for me? And she emailed me back and we struck up a friendship. We're still friends to this day. And, And she's introduced me to a ton of different opportunities within DVC. And so that was literally just a cold email on a whim. The St. Mary's De La Salle as well. I just cold emailed him. I said, "Hey, is anybody interested in this? Are kids interested in business or finance entrepreneurship?" And the the St. Mary's class, I actually met a professor's wife at a party, and I was talking to her. And I think I told her I really like teaching and I run this business. And she's like, "Oh, you should meet my husband. He's a professor there." And I think she she kind of liked me and liked my shtick and. That's how I met this professor at St. Mary's that I'm friends with. Wow!
0: And so you, what did it's you, random stuff. <laughs> yeah. So aside from hiccupop, what are your credentials? I, I guess like what did you what did you major in? You went to Stanford, which is a prestigious school.
2: Yeah, Stanford's probably the main. That's the, yeah. That's the punchline of being <laughs> there. I, it all it doesn't matter what I majored out there. I, I did major at S, uh, in STS, science, technology, and society. It was kind of like create your own major. So it was, it was I took a lot of philosophy classes, a lot of history. I really like psychology, and so that was my major. I don't do well in structure, so that was why I chose create your own major. But that's what I, that's what I did. Nobody cares about my major, but Stanford's pretty impressive to tell people. And that, and I had just, I had taught a lot. I have a lot of passion for it, and I think that comes through as well
0: to people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, as as I was going through your book, I I think what stood out to me the most about it is just how digestible it is and how how straightforward the topics are. Like you're not telling me anything that's that's blowing me away, but you're also telling me a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before in different combinations. Which I, I mean, to your point, you're you're not trying to teach some revolutionary concept. You're you're going back to the basics, but that's what people need most, especially when they're starting out. So I mean, I'm sure you honed that through the classwork, but the book itself really, uh, really spoke to me, and I think people should definitely check it out. I highly recommend the book to any of the listeners. It's available on Amazon. You could finish it in one sitting. Yeah,
2: definitely. I I appreciate it, and as a maybe final thing, it uh, I definitely tried to make it digestible for the consumers. They're the one giving me their money. It's all about the customer. their it's their time that I'm taking up, and mm-hmm. I, I definitely tried to make it as simple as possible. And I think simplicity, what's the quote, right? Simplicity is the ultimate elegance. And I think whether that's how you dress or how you speak or how, or how you write or what you talk about, I think oftentimes Warren Buffett's the master at that. You can read it. There's nothing revolutionary in it, but you read it and you're like, oh my God, I get why this guy's so rich. There's no question in your mind about why he's rich is that just how easily he can explain things you're like he just understands this at a very deep level uh what is it right you don't know something you don't really know something unless you can teach it and i think that applies as well here
0: yeah you can definitely teach it i'll uh, i'll give <laughs> you that I, I appreciate it i appreciate it
1: Davis you're a you're a bright young man. I know that's kind of weird for me saying cuz we're the same age, but you're a bright. <laughs> you're a, you're a bright young man. You got you got a lot of things going for you and we're looking forward uh, to seeing what happens, but you've been a phenomenal guest and thank you so
0: much for your time. I appreciate it. Likewise. Yeah, Davis, good catching up and uh, appreciate you coming on the pod. we'll, uh, we'll be keeping track. We're looking forward good, to big uh, things to come from you, I'm sure. Of course. We'll step by step. And when I have kids, I know where well, I'm, I'm I finding
2: find well. some products. Good. That's um, Jeff Bezos owns a rocket ship company. It's called Blue Origin, and uh, the quote to Blue Origin, it's so badass. This guy's such a badass. But the qu- the motto for the business is Gradatim ferocitor. and that's Latin. And what that means is step by step ferociously. I think that's a very good way to look at it. So that oh. came to mind.
0: Step by step ferociously. Love that. Words to live by. For sure. Thank you so much, Davis. We appreciate it. Thank you guys as well.